Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, providing financial support to the community for 55 years, promoting healthier lives and the advancement of future health care in our region, working together for a healthier tomorrow. More at bloomhf.org. Welcome to Noon Edition on WFIU. I'm your host, Bob Salzberg, along with co-host Lori McRobbie. Today we're talking with guests about two recent Supreme Court rulings that affect students across the United States, student loan that were about student loans and affirmative action. We have two guests with us today in the studio. Both have been here with us uh, a number of times, and we're happy to have them back. Steve Sanders, professor of law at IU's Maurer School of Law and the Val Nolan Faculty Fellow, and Phil Schumann, director of financial literacy at Indiana University. You, you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. You can send us your questions or comments there. You can also send them to news at indianapublicmedia.org. You can join us on the air by calling 812-855-0811, or you can call toll-free at 877-285-9348. Well, welcome back to both of you. We've talked about student debt before. We've talked about uh, affirmative action before. Steve, you were here about six weeks ago, I think, mm -hmm. or maybe four or five weeks ago probably six. Um, but now we have rulings from the Supreme Court. So we want to sort of review those rulings and figure out where we go from here. Let's, let's talk with Phil first. Let's talk, start, about, start with the student debt mm -hmm. issue. So President Biden had this plan to um, forgive student debt, and the Supreme Court said that plan won't work. What was, what was in that? What was the reasoning? So, well, the original plan was basically that there, the forgiveness part, which is yeah. pretty much what most people were focused on. There was going to be up to $10,000 student loan relief for non-Pell Grant recipients. And there was going to be up to $20,000 of relief for Pell Grant recipients. And so the Supreme Court rejected that proposal uh, six to three, basically saying that the Biden administration had overstepped its bounds, that it didn't have the authority to do that sort of blanket forgiveness, uh, that pretty much what needed to happen is it needed to go through Congress in order to get approval. And so, you know, all the millions of borrowers who had thought, hey, we were going to have some sort of loan forgiven, found out, I guess, last month that that was not going to happen. And so the Biden administration sort of figured out what are the next steps to provide some sort of relief for student borrowers. Now, I want to ask Steve. Now, Steve, when you were here last time, we mm -hmm. talked about this. And, you know, one of the things that you mentioned was that you thought there could, you and Tony Fargo both mm -hmm. mentioned, you thought that maybe Supreme Court would look more narrowly at, at Harvard and North Carolina and said you're not doing it the right way, but maybe not. Okay, that was affirmative action. No, oh, was that the affirmative action? Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah. No, we can I'm get to this, that. everything confused. <laughs> That's all right. <laughs> sorry. But on student loans, you know, you're talking about uh, this overstepping by yeah. So when I teach constitutional law uh, and we get to the topic of presidential power, the first case that professors always teach is a case from the 1950s when President Truman tried to seize the steel mills. Uh, steel mills were going to go on a strike. We were in the Korean War. President said, we need steel. I'm taking over the steel mills. And the Supreme Court basically slapped President Truman down and said, you know, the Constitution is not ambiguous about who makes the laws as opposed to who carries out the laws. Congress makes the laws, the president, the executive branch carry out the laws. Now, it, realistically, we have federal agencies like the Department of Education that often have to fill in a lot of details and are given broad discretion within the laws that Congress makes to, to carry out those laws and to say, you know, how these laws apply. But um, sometimes presidents want to go beyond that and they test the limits of the authority that Congress has provided. So um, in the wake of the 9-11 attacks in 2003, Congress passed something called the HEROES Act, which basically authorizes the Secretary of Education during a time of national emergency to waive or modify certain provisions of the student loan laws. Well, under, we, we, under the COVID pandemic, we were in a presidentially declared national emergency so far, so good. And the uh, Secretary of Education made the argument that by 
forgi- essentially enacting a blanket waiver, a, for- a, a forgiveness of, I think it was $430 billion mm-hmm. in um, student loans, that, that he was uh, waiving or modifying the law. And, and, and in short, the, the Supreme Court came back and said, no, that's just too cute. That goes too far. To modify something implies to do something incremental or modest or limited. Uh, and waiver doesn't work because uh, Congress did specifically authorize the secretary to forgive certain kinds of debt for public servants and so forth. And so it's not logically consistent to imagine that Congress would have imagined the secretary of education could just say, I'm, I'm waiving the obligation to repay. And, and so to some extent, this was a lawyerly debate about what do words mean? What does, what does it mean to waive or to modify something? But in the bigger picture, it's about the Supreme Court you know, believing that it has the job, the authority, the the responsibility to police the boundaries of Congress's role in making laws versus the president and the executive branch and agencies like the Department of Education, their role in carrying out and implementing those laws within the boundaries of what Congress says. And as, as Phil said, basically the court concluded, you know, this could happen, but if it's going to happen, Congress has to be more clear. If I can follow up and then I'll turn it over to Lori. So, Phil, the president now has a new plan. So how does that differ from what he was trying to do before? So this one isn't going to be blanket loan forgiveness. It's not just going to be, hey, we're going to forgive up to this amount of money for certain borrowers and this amount of money for other borrowers. This is more talking about how we're going to handle the repayment side of things. Um, the, the administration has gone in so far and looked at borrowers who qualified under income-driven repayment plans and has pr- actually provided some forgiveness up to this point for borrowers who have made good faith efforts to make payments and the government now considers them to be uh, at a status where they can have the balance of their loans forgiven. But what the administration has proposed is what they now call the SAVE plan. Um, it's an acronym. I always try and remember what it means. I'm forgetting at the moment, but it's the SAVE plan. Um, and basically what they're t- doing is a couple things. They're going to, uh, let's see, they're going to increase the income exemption from 150% to 225% of the poverty line. So what that means in terms of dollar amounts is that a single person who is making $32,800 or less isn't going to have to make any loan payments for right now. And then a family of four, if they're earning $67,500 or less, they also won't have to make payments too. And so basically, it's putting, a, uh, it's putting people in the position of if they're coming from a low or moderate income family, they're not going to be overburdened by the level of student loan debt that they have. The other things that are going along with this is that if they're making their monthly payment, if they're making good faith efforts towards making their monthly payments, the interest that accrues is not going to get accumulated to the point where they're going to have to try and pay that off as well. The government is sort of being a little bit more forgiving about that piece, which is nice because you hear all these stories about people who are underwater, not because of their original loan balance, but because of the amount of interest that's accrued over the course of time. The other big thing that really comes into play here is basically, and I'm going to read this word for word because I want to make sure I get this right. What it says is that borrowers whose original principal balances were $12,000 or less will receive forgiveness after 120 payments, so 10 years, so the equivalent of 10 years in repayment, with an additional 12 payments added for each additional $1,000 borrowed above that level up to a maximum of 20 to 25 years. What that, in mean, what that means in short is basically if, you're, if you have $12,000 of loans or less, you're going to have that balance forgiven after 10 years if you're making good faith efforts on those payments. For every $1,000 that goes above that $12,000, you're going to be required to make an additional year's worth of payments. And so basically, you're going to see people cap out probably at about twenty-two dollars to $25,000 of student loan payments. And if they're making good faith efforts on those payments, the balance after all of that will be forgiven. But that still will take 20 to 25 years. Okay. So just following up on that and, and to Steve's points about how much discretion the Department of Education has to kind of make these rules, these are all theoretically within the scope of responsibility of the Department of Education to or that perhaps is the debate, right? Um, it, it, to make to make certain specific kinds of of rules about payments, and and another example, and I think one of you mentioned this kind of in passing, is um, borrowers who are in some kind of um, public service occupation for a period of time can get their loans forgiven. And just just to clarify that, because that that was all happening at the same time the Supreme Court ruling came down, 
because there had been this longstanding issue with the Department of Education systems with respect to how well it had identified these borrowers who should have had their loans forgiven and had not and now were being. And so people kind of got that uh, confused. But they really were two separate things. But going back to the question is this, this does turn on the ability of the Department of Education to set certain kinds of of rules about repayment and and in theory up to a point that 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 is okay is that a fair statement when it comes to public servants i think Cong- congress did authorize that expressly the secretary may cancel a set amount of loans held by some public servants and um, according to the Supreme Court opinion. And again, logically, the argument is, well, if Congress intended to give the secretary the power to just cancel debt, it knew how to do that. Right, and it didn't it do, so. And it yeah. didn't do that for, for these other people. Now, what I, I, what I would ask Phil is the, the, the provisions that he's talked about, is that still, though, just for people who held loans, you know, who had active loans during the pandemic? So, uh, at least the authority the Secretary of Education was previously invoking was based on the the authority a president has during a time of national emergency. I think President Biden has now declared the COVID pandemic over in terms of the legal definition mm-hmm. of a national emergency. So um, do you know, is is this still intended as a continuation of the authority under the HEROES Act, or is this something else? I wouldn't be able to say whether or not it's a continuation under the HEROES Act. I don't, th- I, I will say, I don't think this has anything to do with the emergency aspect of it. Okay. I think basically what this is doing, um, you know, in the Biden administration talked about this, the Trump administration talked about it as well. Like, there are just so many different repayment plans when it comes to college. If you go on the, you know, the federal student aid website right now, you will see all these different types of repayment plans. They're all, one is more confusing than the next. Mm -hmm. And what this is trying to do here is basically simplify that and simplify it in two ways. Number one, condense the number of repayment plans down to just a few so it makes more sense and it's easier for borrowers to see this is what my obligation is Mm going to be after I graduate once I have to start making repayments. So I think that's a big part of what this is. But then the other piece to this is to, you know, so many Americans, whether or not it's because of the pandemic, prior to the pandemic, anything along those lines, they are more or less underwater or they're mm-hmm. struggling because of the financial, you know, the, the financial commitments they have towards the student debt. And so what they're trying to do here is figure out, is there a way that we can bo- help boost those people up? Mm-hmm. And I think it's also important to note that, you know, it's not the people who graduated from college in large part. It's not the people who graduated from college that are struggling. It's the people who tried to go to college. And I, tr- and I mean, try in a very respectful way. You know, life happens. Anything could happen that could cause a person to have to drop out, stop out whatever. And those people who tried to make it through college and get their degree and try and achieve some sort of economic prosperity, they were unable to do it for whatever reason. And so this is trying to provide a lifeline for those people because the majority of people in this country who are defaulting on loans or defaulted on loans before the pandemic, they weren't people who had $50,000, $100,000 in student loan debt. You look at it, the majority is like people who had under Mm $10,000 in debt. And it was those people who tried to go to community college, who tried to go to four-year publics and just couldn't make it for whatever reason. This is trying to help those people get back to, I, I guess, solid footing. Yeah. And so, you know, again, back to your, your point or your question, like, it's, I don't think this has anything to do with the HEROES Act. I think this is just the administration now saying, okay, if we can't do that, what can we do that can help alleviate some of the stress that people are having from a financial standpoint? And, and going back to Lori's question, I guess, I, 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 I haven't done any kind of legal analysis of, of what is happening since, but the federal government employs lots of lawyers. And, and I, I think we just have to hope and assume that whatever the Biden administration is now doing, they're doing consistent with what are probably very complicated regulations and regulations that do routinely give a lot of authority to the agency to exercise flexibility. And so the the kinds of things Phil is describing do sound more incremental. They sound more like what we would understand a word like modify to mean as opposed to just a wholesale forgiveness. Phil, if if I can follow up just to see if I can clarify a little bit of this too. What you're talking about is Somebody who goes to school maybe borrows, let's say they've got $8,000 in student loans. They can't make it. They can't meet their loan obligation. That's still going to accrue interest over time, 
right? That is still going to accrue interest over the course of time. But what this plan is also saying, too, is that that accrued interest, as long as you're making good faith efforts mm -hmm. to make those payments, if you're required to make those payments, you're not going to be on the hook for those interest payments. Because gotcha. what we, again, we don't want to see, or I guess what the administration is saying, we don't want to see people who have this balance after they graduate and all of a sudden that like their interest is going to accrue and right. it makes it harder for them to pay it off because that's what a lot of people are struggling with. Right. Like they're making good faith efforts on making those payments, but their salary doesn't cover, you know, the amount of money that they have to pay on those loans plus the interest associated with it. Yeah, that was that was kind of where that was where I was going toward yep. because if somebody can't make those payments and and even stops, can't make those good faith effort payments because they just don't have the money. They're going to wake up one day and they're going to have a really large student loan that they didn't know about. Right. And, and, and the other thing I'll say, too, is when we when we last talked about this, we were talking before the show started. I think the last time I was here is when the proposal came out about loan forgiveness. I think I remember saying that one of my favorite things about it was not the loan forgiveness piece, the ten to $20,000. My favorite was what they were going to do with income-based repayments because it was going to put people in a position where they were going to be able to afford their monthly payments. That's what this is. So this is my – like. You know, I, I've done this for a while now and I get excited about the things that nobody else gets excited about. This is what I'm excited about because it's putting people back in the position where they could see a light at the end of the tunnel as it relates to getting rid of their debt. Let me give our contact information again. If you want to join us on the program, we're talking about the Supreme Court student debt ruling and what alternatives there are now. We have Phil Schumann here. He is the Director of Financial Literacy at Indiana University and also we're talking about the affirmative action case and what universities can do to help have a diverse uh, student body and uh, diverse enrollment at their campuses. We have Steve Sanders, professor of law at IU's Maurer School of Law and the Val Nolan Faculty Fellow. You can call us 812-855-0811, toll free at 877-285-9348. You can also send us questions, news at indianapublicmedia.org or on Twitter at Noon Edition. I wanted. We want to get to the affirmative action question, but but Phil, I wanted to ask you about just your experience uh, working on financial literacy with at I at IU and with IU students. And um, I, I was when you were describing the change that the Biden administration is proposing. I was imagining a question about how hard is it to explain that to people, and then you said this is actually an attempt to make. I mean, broadly speaking, attempt to make what is incredibly confusing already even simpler. But so it leads me to just ask you what your experience has been, really, since IU began its um, very its formal financial yeah. literacy program, and with things like sending a debt letter to students and so forth. And we saw a lot of the positive outcomes with respect to students um, student borrowing. Um, what's been your experience over that period of time? in terms of how well you think students are understanding the financial aid landscape. I mean, is it better now? I think people are starting to ask more questions. Um, I think, you know, a combination of our office and, you know, it's like I, I am fully aware, like our office is responsible for everything. I think the university has done a really comprehensive job of sort of opening the door to allow people to start asking financial questions and being more transparent about what it's going to take for you to come to college and what it's going to cost. And I think the big thing that we're trying to do, you know, originally it was that student debt piece. Let's talk to students. Let's help them figure out how much it's going to cost you to come here. Let's figure out what the efficient level of borrowing is so that way you don't dig yourself into too deep of a hole and you borrow the money that you need. We've sort of shifted our attention over the course of time. Like it's no longer about student debt. We have financial aid conversations, although we really direct people to, you know, here in Bloomington, Student Central, you know, and on the other campuses, their, their respective financial aid office. What we're focused on now is trying to help educate people about finances because of student success. So the idea that finances are the number one reason why students drop out of school. And so what, what things can we put in place that are going to help students overcome those financial barriers to completion? Because there are so many things that are happening right now, you know, whether or not it's basic needs security. Um, another thing that I've been thinking about lately is like it's not tuition anymore that's increasing. Tuition is increasing. I, I shouldn't say that. Tuition is increasing, but it's increasing at a slower rate than inflation. What is increasing at the rate of inflation is the cost of living. And for anybody who lives in Bloomington, you, I, I assume you know Bloomington is the most expensive place to live in the state of Indiana. It's like that in a lot of other college towns across the country. And so now the problem isn't necessarily the tuition. It's the cost of living 
in that place where you're getting that degree. And so what we're talking with students about right now is how can they afford to be a student? How can they make sure that they're managing to have what it is they need in order to survive academically, survive as a person as well? So that way that they can, again, get that college degree, graduate, have that economic prosperity and go from there. And it's been interesting over the course of the last decade that that's where the shift has gone in terms of what the conversations are we're having with students. And I think the most important thing that we've been focusing on when we have these conversations, because money is still a very taboo subject, people don't want to talk about it a whole lot, is making sure we're providing like a judgment-free zone, that we're not questioning people's financial decisions. Mm -hmm. We're just making sure they have the information at hand so they can make the most informed decision possible. Yeah. I think, uh, and Phil, you work with a, a lot of students, but there, people might drive into Bloomington, they see all these brand new sparkling apartments that cost a lot of money. They see some really nice cars from a lot of students, very well-dressed students. What percentage of that, I don't mean a number of a percentage, but how is the breakdown of students that really have a difficult time, you know, making ends meet versus those students that, the stereotype of the students who come in with a lot of money? It's, it's really hard. Um, you know, I'm a pretty much lifelong Bloomington resident. I got away for 10 years or what I'm going to say and then came back here and the landscape has changed pretty dramatically. And it's really easy to see all the stuff that has been built, all the growth, all the condos, all the fancy places. Like it's hard to miss those things. And it's hard to also forget that there are so many students, there are so many people in this town who are also struggling at the exact same time. And even if you don't look at it just from a Bloomington perspective, I challenge people to think about what the student life might be like at IU East or IU Northwest or IU South Bend, where you've got these people who are coming from probably lower income backgrounds. And so they're not the traditional student. And I think what people need to focus on is that Bloomington, like, you know, IU Bloomington, you can you see a lot of the students there and you think, oh, that's a traditional college student. It's not that way anymore. There's not a traditional college student anymore. And so you could see all of those fancy cars and all those fancy condos and stuff like that. But just keep in the back of your mind that most college students aren't that way. You're just seeing it because it's the thing that's most prevalent and it's the thing that catches your eye. But there are so many more students who are struggling, and those are the ones that we really have to focus on and pay attention to to make sure they can graduate. Uh, yeah. My last question about student debt really is – I say that, but I may have more. I'm sorry. But Phil and and Steve, I mean, there a lot of the arguments – you'd hear the, on the political argument, it's like, well, hey, they – People took out a loan and they need to pay it back. Why, why should we be forgiving student debt? Um, but what, what, were the, what were the factors involved with, with student debt being a big issue? How has student debt been, you know, been trending over the years? And why, you know, why has student debt become such a, uh, a burden? I mean, I'll, I'll answer from my perspective and obviously Steve for this one too. I mean, what I see and, and how I sort of approach this as well, it's a, it's a little bit of a sociological perspective on this where basically we're a pretty individualistic culture. We tend to think of ourselves as like, what's in it, what's in it for me? Student debt has become a big issue because if people have their loans forgiven, well, I'm not giving my loans forgiven and so therefore what's in it for me? It's not fair that one person gets something and I don't get something else. And so that's the attitude that we've seen, and that's sort of gone the political divisive way where one side is like, well, that's not fair that we don't get this. The other side is, well, it is fair. If you talk about it from a financial perspective, yeah, if you sign the dotted line saying, like, I want to borrow loans, you should have to repay it. But again, going back to what I said earlier about, you know, for whatever reason, people have had things that have happened in their lives. The pandemic certainly was one of them where their lives were just upended. And this was an opportunity in, the, in a lot of people's minds to get them back to even footing. And so if we could do that, maybe that would help us out. It would uh, certainly help alleviate some of the income inequality across, you know, all these different demographics across the country. This seemed to be like the opportunity to do it, which is why it became political and why people wanted to do it or didn't want to do it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, from my office's perspective, as we just sort of talk to people, you know, what we try to get people to focus on was if you, this was your friend, if this was your friend going through this and they had the opportunity to get their lives back again to even footing, I keep saying that, but just get themselves back to the point where they could start making progress in their financial lives and it made them happier, wouldn't you want that? And that was just sort of where we stopped at that point. When I went to law school, 
20 years ago now, mid-career, um, I remember it was actually very easy to borrow money. Uh, you know, and, and I, you know, I don't think we had the benefit of people like Phil, or at least if where I went to law school, they hadn't, you know, I didn't take advantage of that. And, you know, I probably lived beyond my means, and I'm still, you know, I'm still literally paying for that. Uh, now, I'm not complaining about myself. I've got a good job. I can afford the payments, but I, I do sense that it, it it's easy to take out debt. And, and you know, I, places like IU have put in place offices like the one that Phil leads to help, you know, students have a sense of control. But it's easy to take out debt and imagine you're going to have no problem paying it back. Um, you know, the, the, again, the, the rationale for the Biden administration's proposed plan to forgive was the pandemic and no question that many people were adversely affected economically by the pandemic. Now, the Biden program had a pretty expansive definition of, you know, who is affected and what it means to be affected. And just to circle back the question you said, you know, why should we, should we, should we not uh, forgive debt? Those are, th those are, that's a political debate. That's a good debate for us to have. It's, those are legitimate questions to ask. Again, no one is questioning that Congress would have the authority to broaden forgiveness or change terms if it wanted to. Um, I, I think part of it is we don't have a sort of functional political system where that kind of good faith debate can take place and then a rational decision can be made. Uh, and so, you know, th that might be one fault I might ascribe to the Supreme Court's decision is it sort of assumes a rational, well-functioning political process. Whereas what we have seen is presidents like President Biden, but this goes back on other issues to things President Trump did and President Obama did. Um, when faced with gridlock in a dysfunctional Congress, you see presidents in all sorts of different areas uh, trying to do what they can using the authority that the presidency has. Okay. We're going to Turn to the, um, the the other issue now. We're going to turn to to using race for enrollment purposes. And and uh, Steve, we're going to start with you, Phil. You'll you'll have some role to play in this. Uh, that's going to be interesting. I'm going to listen in, and uh, yeah, I'm interested. Yeah. So yeah, as I was saying before, I mean, you you did talk in the last program about how perhaps the Supreme Court would look at this more narrowly and look at the fact that Harvard and North Carolina mm -hmm. weren't doing it the right way and they wouldn't just throw out this affirmative action idea. That wasn't really what happened. So just review what, what did happen and then we're gonna have to talk about what happens next. Yeah, let me give a, a little bit of background. So since the late 1970s, the Supreme Court has said that under the Constitution, um, government agencies, which include state universities, may not use, uh, may not use race in a way that represents a, a quota or, or, or a mechanical application, that, that that is race discrimination. The Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment, um, over the years, the court has interpreted to protect against discrimination on the basis of race. And the court said that aggressive affirmative action programs that engage in quotas or are intended to make up for societal discrimination, that in itself is a form of discrimination that the Constitution forbids. But what the court left open was the possibility that universities could pursue what's been called educational diversity. Um, in 2003, the Supreme Court decided a case, Grutter versus Bollinger, um, which basically said um, when universities use race just as a plus factor, when they use it in the same way they might consider whether a student has other unique talents or has traveled the world or was a varsity athlete, in all sorts of ways, universities seek to put together an interesting and diverse, across many different planes, a student body. And, and race and ethnicity can be one part of that, as long as it's not used mechanically, as long as it's not part of a quota, as long as you don't automatically get 20 extra points for being of a minority race or ethnicity, th then it's fine. Race can be used as a plus factor because universities have an interest in assembling a diverse classroom. The, the, the Grutter decision drew on research and testimony in court that um, the classroom is more effective when it is racially and ethnically diverse, that universities do their jobs in preparing citizens more effectively. So that is the model that has governed for the past uh, 20 years now, the, the model that a limited consideration of race and ethnicity in the application, in the admission process, as long as it's part of a holistic review of the whole student, is acceptable. So sometimes race would be a tipping factor as to whether a student got admitted or not, uh, but it would be based on 
all of their credentials. Um, well, what happened in the decision this past term that the court announced, the Students for Fair Admissions decision, is the court essentially overturned Grutter versus Bollinger. Um, it said, now it didn't admit that it was doing that, but that's the way most commentators interpret the decision. The Supreme Court said this business of educational diversity and having students of all ethnicities in the classroom making it more you know, effective, we don't know how to measure that. That's not something judges can measure. And too often it said universities are using race mechanically. Uh, there was evidence at Harvard uh, that, that, that race was actually determinative for a majority majority of the minority students, of, of, of underrepresented students who had been admitted. And so I, I think what you saw is a more conservative court um, exercising hostility toward affirmative action and saying this, again, represents a form of racial discrimination which the Constitution forbids. Um, I still maintain, so as you said, that this case focused on uh, the way Harvard and the University of North Carolina were running their admissions programs. And that's what the court had in front of it. And so I might make an argument that, you know, universities that are still doing things according to the way the court authorized 20 years ago might still be okay, that this this was slapping down sort of missteps that Harvard and North Carolina were making, but that's not the way most people interpret the decision. Most people interpret the decision as all universities now are going to have to fundamentally rethink um, their admissions processes and to the extent they were expressly giving consideration positively to race and ethnicity, that will have to stop. And yeah. in, in, in it, it give consideration in any form whatsoever. So it, this idea of trying to be race blind, in other words. Th that's right, yeah, a, yeah. a, a color blind, as, yeah. as, the, as the court put it. it yeah. Sort of philosophically under the Constitution to give equal protection, there's a debate. Does, does that mean strict color blindness, meaning any use of race, whether it harms or benefits an underrepresented minority is uh, is taboo or should we subscribe to what's sometimes called an anti-subordination view that the purpose of the Equal Protection Clause was to help a group, formerly enslaved persons, who needed the government's assistance to get back on their footing and that when a policy is remedial, when it attempts to extend a hand, uh, that is not the same kind of evil as when a government policy mm -hmm. discriminates or oppresses a group. Justice Stevens famously said it, it, it confuses the difference between uh, a welcome mat and a do not enter uh, mm -hmm. sign. But, uh, but, but what we have now is a court that is pledged to this idea of strict colorblindness and that affirmative action, it says, is not consistent with that. I have a really basic question that just maybe <laughs> probably others know the answer to, but so Harvard is a private university. Mm -hmm. Yep. University of North Carolina is not. But why can't a private university decide who it wants to admit? So this gets to a, a slightly complicated question. So the Constitution's Equal Protection Clause, which is what the court is interpreting here, what does it mean in the context of government consideration of race and admissions to give equal protection laws? The Constitution applies to public agencies, government agencies like Indiana. But there is a congressional statute, Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which is understood, at least the Supreme Court, that prohibits discrimination on the basis of race in education. And what the Supreme Court has said is when we give an interpretation of what it means to discriminate on the basis of race under the Equal Protection Clause for public universities, this statute, Title VI, makes those decisions equally applicable to private universities. So although the Constitution technically doesn't apply to Harvard by virtue of this federal non-discrimination statute, essentially Congress has extended those same principles to private universities. Yeah, thank you. It is it would, would I be off base if I said it seems as if Congress was trying to make sure that private universities couldn't stay all white, couldn't discriminate against people of color? Again, when, when Title VI was passed in 1964, sure, the, the, the predominant concern, you know, our, the image of race discrimination at that time was discrimination that is invidious, the discrimination that mistreats traditionally underrepresented minority groups. But once again, in the hands of a Supreme Court that is hostile toward affirmative action, the court consults history and, 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 and 
uh, notions of what constitutional equality means and says, you know, we must be colorblind and we must apply the law in the same way no matter who is benefited or harmed. It's, it's interesting, you know, this gets back to the previous topic with a dysfunctional Congress. I mean, in theory, um, Congress could alter the law, at least as to private universities, it, because again, the Constitution doesn't apply to private universities. Congress could say Harvard and other universities get to engage in affirmative action if they want to. Uh, we say it's okay by statute, but that's probably not likely to happen anytime we soon. Were having a bit of a conversation about this before the program began, and uh, Sarah sends in a question that says, will this affect scholarships that take race into consideration? I, I, I'm hesitant to venture any kind of authoritative answer because I haven't researched the question. I mean, to the extent that you know, a public university like IU is, is handling money and dispersing money and making decisions, Presumably, it can't make decisions that favor one racial group or ethnic group over another, and presumably that would include scholarships as well. But as I said, I've not studied the issue. I know that um, IU's general counsel's office is in the midst of working on researching this issue so it can give guidance to all of the schools about what their policies can do. Whether that whether they're looking at the scholarships issue specifically or not, I don't know. I know they're, you know, we at the law school have basically been told, you know, we have to wait for the general counsel's office to tell us, you know, how our admissions procedures may look in the future. But I, I think the scholarships question is legitimate, and if universities are giving scholarships that that where where race being of one race or ethnicity is a criterion, they they might be vulnerable to challenge. I I could just add here. I think going back to how you were describing where we, the Grutter versus, mm-hmm. versus Bollinger um, standard, where race is a is a plus factor. Mm-hmm. I think donors can say can can write a scholarship uh, fund to give a preference. Mm-hmm. And so the, the preference language then, I think, allows, basically gives the university, basically signals where that donor wants things mm-hmm. to go, but, if, but it doesn't require them, doesn't tie their hands, and it is perhaps more consistent with that idea of race being a plus factor. Mm-hmm. So now, now, you know, I, just to reiterate this question another way, is that preference for language mm-hmm. still going to fly. Yeah, a, a, a university when it receives funds is is obligated to honor a donor's intent. That's a matter of contract law, but the university can't then take those funds and use them in a way that is inconsistent with the Constitution, which is our fundamental right. governing law. And so, as I said, there, there may be answers to this about um, you know how, how that can be navigated. And I think people in the general counsel's office at IU and the IU Foundation are going to be busy with those questions. Yeah. One more question on the legal front uh, that just occurred to me. Are, uh, given, given this court's propensity to, propensity to um, drive certain laws and so forth out to the states. Mm-hmm. Uh, are there any ways in which individual states can uh, either put guardrails or specify certain actions on the part of those universities that are constitutionally convened by the state, yeah. like IU? In, 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 so that a state could not authorize a university to do what the Supreme Court has said they may not do. So what we did see, um, kind of the flip side of that, after the Grutter decision 20 years ago, where the Supreme Court said it is acceptable under the Constitution for you to perform this limited version of affirmative action, there were nine or 10 states that actually forbid forbade their universities from doing that you know so if just because it's constitutionally permissible doesn't mean it's required and right. states could right. weigh in on that but here where the court says thou shalt not because if you do you're violating the constitution a state can't really can't alter that yeah. yeah Phil it looked like you want to jump I, in I just wanted to jump in something like a thought that I've had for a while and I don't know how this all plays into anything but it's the only contribution I can make to affirmative action because I'm just listening in on this but in the conversations that I've had, like, yeah, it sounds like so the language was color, colorblind. Colorblind constitution. Okay, so yeah. colorblind constitution. But we're still a pretty data-driven society. Mm-hmm. So, okay, so we can't use race as a factor in this, but we still have access to zip codes. We still have access to high schools. Mm-hmm. We still have the ability to make educated decisions. So I'm trying to, I'm trying to figure out, like, did the Supreme Court rule in any of that? Like, 
it doesn't seem like you can limit it from a uh, from a color from a racial perspective. But there are so many other ways that I feel like universities. I don't want to say go around it because I don't think there's necessarily any malintent there. But there are still other ways to figure out how can you still achieve a pretty diverse mm-hmm. group yeah. beyond just the idea of race. No, absolutely. And and again, states like Michigan, California that had actually barred affirmative action, uh, you know, for, for, for quite a few years now, those universities had to figure out strategies. And so you can make extra efforts to target and recruit in zip codes and cities that have high numbers of black and Latino and Asian students. You can, you can do expanded outreach uh, to high schools. You can take socioeconomic status and class into account, which is often in ends up being a proxy for being a member of an underrepresented minority group. All of that is okay. In fact, those kinds of what are sometimes called race-neutral alternatives are what opponents' affirmative action have said universities should be doing and still can do. And, and interestingly, the court left one door open. It said near the end of its opinion, nothing in this opinion should be construed as prohibiting universities from considering an, applica- an applicant's discussion of how race affected his or her life, be it through discrimination, inspiration, or otherwise. Um, uh, uh, as long as the benefit to the student is tied to that student's unique ability and situation. And so that suggests that our admissions offices don't have to absolutely redact any mention of a student's race. If a student can say, I deserve admission because I have overcome adversity and, and, and here's how and my racial experience is a part of that, the court has said that that's fine. Yeah, very, very And, and I, 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 I suspect that universities will be looking at that and trying to leverage that as much as possible yeah. as well. You, Steve, you recently uh, moderated a couple of panels with your mm-hmm. uh, Big Ten, uh, I assume they were law school mm-hmm. representatives. Um, can you say a bit about what you're seeing uh, and to what, the extent that anybody could talk to what the whole universities were doing in the Big, Big Ten? What, in terms of that collection of universities now, much more than 10. Mm-hmm. What's, what's been the experience and what are they looking at going forward? Well, I, again, I, 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 those, those panels took place in, in I think a week after the decision mm-hmm. was issued. And so uh, everyone was reluctant to say, well, here's what our strategy is going to be. And in many sure. cases they were saying, you know, I'm not allowed to talk about what we're doing. I can talk in general terms. As I said, the, at IU, we're, we're all awaiting sort of word and, and analysis right. from the sure. general counsel's office. And so I, I I don't think it's possible to say that that a clear plan of action had emerged. You know that that, that universities had a, a definite plan of action at that time. But one of the conversa- one of the participants in those conversations was uh, the dean of Michigan State Law School, and again, she has had to work in it in a climate that is like this. Like the new one, she's had to work in that for years because Michigan didn't let its universities engage in any kind of affirmative action. And yet she will have a record incoming class of students, uh, 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 underrepresented minority students will will be at record numbers in her class. And she's done the kinds of things, the targeted outreach, the getting to know students in their individual situations, that kind of labor-intensive admissions work, I think, that is necessary. Yeah. So there, there are ways to do it. Yeah, I'm, I'm. Uh, was just came up in conversation with with a friend last night. Is uh, the University of Texas has for years, I don't know how long, but for a long time, had a policy of admitting the top ten percent of mm-hmm. every single public high, public maybe and private. I don't know, but certainly public high mm-hmm. schools in the state. To I don't know if it's specifically to Austin or any of the other maybe at the other University of Texas campuses. Um, which means that if you wind up with a high school that's 80% mm-hmm. African American or 80% Latino, you're admitting 10% of that class, and that yeah. actually has helped to deal with the the issue of all, all diversity in all mm-hmm. kinds of ways. Um, and again, that's the I don't kind know of what else what the experience what people say about what Texas has actually done. I, I haven't yeah. seen anything on that. I, I mean, I think that it depends on being in a state where you have pockets or cities that do have very substantial numbers of black and Latino and Asian and, mm-hmm. or other underrepresented right. groups. But but again, that that's the kind of quote unquote race neutral alternative mm-hmm. that even someone as hostile toward affirmative action as Clarence Thomas has endorsed, I think, saying if universities just did that, then they wouldn't need to give an extra boost or a preference of any kind to an individual applicant on the basis of their race. Yeah. 
Here's a, a, a question. Maybe it's more of a statement that came in, and I just want to put it out there to get reaction from you. And um, Lori, because of your previous life, I'm not sure if you want to comment on this or not. It might not be. I don't know. As a co-host, just think about it. Um, it says, now that affirmative action is officially dead, you all, wanna, might, you all might want to point out that it never really existed at IU Bloomington. And this says, uh, sends us then some supporting documentation that says, uh, in 1975-76, IU Bloomington's black enrollment was 3.5%. Um, and in... Uh, today, I use black enrollment as 3.4%, so that there wasn't um, any progress made over the last, well, that would be uh, 25, 20, uh, 48 years. Those well, n- that number strikes me as low, although I don't it have... It says yeah. this comes from... Um, I, I don't know. These are, support, these are numbers that have, mm-hmm. that have been sent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I... So. I, I I will comment simply because I really have nothing to do with, despite the fact that I'm quite close to people who were a little bit more involved with, with all of that. Simply to say that I think one one factor that any you have to look at when you look at statistics like that is: are we counting the meaning of black the same way in the first year that the the caller cited, I don't remember what, what that first 75, year was, 75, 1975, as we are today. And I know there have been some changes in how we ask students to identify, um, you know, applications now allowing people to identify as multiracial in ways that that wasn't the case, I think, in 1975. So, I mean, that's mm-hmm. one way to mm-hmm. to get perhaps a more of an apples-to-apples comparison. Mm-hmm. And I also would guess that that's a, those are numbers for IU Bloomington, not are. for IU right. across yeah. the board. Yeah, it, it's very specific to say that it, affirmative action never existed at IU yeah. And I'm seeing numbers. I'm looking quickly on the web. It looks like the figure for black students is more like four percent. Okay, not a big, a big difference from what the, uh, from what the caller or the writer said. Um, I, I, you know, I, I, the admissions office has to has to work with the applications it gets and and with the people who've mm-hmm. actually applied, and and under and I believe our admissions office has believed that up until now that it can use the latitude that Grutter gave it, but Grutter doesn't. You know what it can't do is to admit students who don't meet our basic admission standards. It's kind of predicated on the idea that lots of people may be above a certain minimum threshold, and then within that, you can give a plus factor on the basis of race or ethnicity. But uh, I I know something that IU Bloomington is continually working on, I think, is just doing more outreach and marketing to get more um, well-qualified applicants of all Mm -hmm. races and ethnicities. We have another question that says, what about uh, the HBUs, traditionally black universities, how will this affect them? So there, there is a statutory exemption. There, you know, under federal law, historically black universities and colleges are allowed to exist. Although I, I believe it's the case that they, you know, they, they can't, they can't, they can have an identity of being traditionally black, but that doesn't mean that they have latitude to reject a white applicant just for being white. But I'm not. I'm not positive on that. Uh, the other question, another couple more have come in, but I have another question I'll, I must get to, and that is that some universities are uh, dropping their legacy programs mm-hmm. now because they might skew more white is what mm-hmm. the way I understand that. So is that a, an effect of the Supreme Court decision, do you think? I, I, so I, I read an item, it may have been on WFIU's website just in the past week that said both IU and Purdue have officially said they don't, they don't give any special preference to alumni, uh, uh, to children of alumni. Uh, so, so we don't practice that. Uh, I think that's a target, especially at elite universities like Harvard. I think there's a stereotype or an image of legacies. You know, you, you get some lazy, unqualified, you know, rich kid just because they're the son or the daughter of an alumnus. They get in and they don't deserve that. You know, as somebody who's been around universities pretty much my whole career, I, I 
tend to believe that there is something to be said for the idea. Like, imagine how many people you meet who are proud of the fact that their IU family goes back three or four generations. My uncle and my parents and my grandparents all went here. There is something to be said for the loyalty that is that that is engendered by those kinds of connections. But I think going as far back as the 1980s and 1990s, our admissions office sort of said, you know, we don't give any special preference. Yes, we love children of alumni, but you don't get a special uh, pass just because of that. You still have to meet our standards. Right, right. They have to, you still have to earn your earn your slot, and then we really mm-hmm. celebrate you as having a whole family of yeah mm-hmm. yeah. I think that's exactly right. So, what other programs are are possible for going forward um, that would help this? You know, help to. I think there are a lot of people that say and uh, that you know diversity is a, an ab- admirable goal, and it's. I think one of you mentioned that there's statistically it shows there there's statistics that show that. People value and get more value out of out of a campus or an environment that is diverse and has more opinions. So, what you mentioned a couple legal things. Are there other things that we've missed for going forward? I mean, I, what I would just say about all of this is just you know I think this opens up the door for the conversation of what is diversity because I think in this in this focus with this legislation, like we're specifically focusing on the racial aspect of things. And I, I do want to clarify, say like that is absolutely an important part of every institution. It needs to be as diverse racially as it can be. It need, need to be representative of the population. But so too does it need to be socioeconomic. So does it need to be culturally. There are so many other pieces to that diversity that we have to make sure that we're including in part of this. And so I think that has to be part of the discussion moving forward as well. Universities can also, I think, uh, you know, continue doing everything they can to ensure a healthy climate and culture on their campus to be sure that true incidents of discrimination or bias or harassment are followed up on, to foster conversations uh, and events that bring people together across racial and ethnic and all kinds of other lines. Now, you know, we're not Florida. Uh, there are places that have tar- tried to target even universities' attempts to spend money on that kind of thing, on diversity, equity, inclusion. But so far, Legally, at least, there's nothing that says the university can't do everything it possibly can to foster a climate that is welcoming to everyone. In our last minute, I'm going to turn back to Phil and say, what's the biggest mistake students make in terms of, of you know, student debt and getting themselves into, into trouble? Give us one bit of advice for any incoming students who might be listening. I mean, I think... It, 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 this is going to be an overgeneralization, but sure. I think it's it's true of student debt. It's true of retirement planning. It's all of that kind of stuff. It's the it's the people who play the game of we'll just figure it out. It's the lack of preparation. It's the lack of planning. It's the lack of figuring out what it's going to cost in order to do the thing that you want to do in order to achieve your goal. So, you know, one of the things we built on online on our website is we have a calculator that helps students estimate how much money it's going to cost them to come to school. It's not just the tuition piece. It's also room and board. It's also, you know, uh, transportation, personal expenses, all that kind of stuff to give you an accurate estimation as to what it's going to cost and so that you can drill down, you know, use your financial aid scholarships, work study, all of that kind of stuff to figure out how much are we going to have to pay out of pocket and then go from there. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. It was a tough question for the last minute. Thank you to Phil Schumann, Director of Financial Literacy at Indiana University, Steve Sanders, Professor of Law at IU's Maurer School of Law, and also thank you to Lori McRobbie, our producer, Nathan, uh, Nathan Moore, our engineer, Mike Pashkash. I'm Bob Salzberg. Thanks for listening. Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, providing financial support to the community for 55 years, promoting healthier lives and the advancement of future health care in our region, working together for a healthier tomorrow. More at bloomhf.org.